Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, fallout from the Huawei CFO BC Supreme Court ruling. What will China do to Canada in retaliation? What can we do to keep our long-term care centers in order? Can we properly supervise private institutions? And Ontario says we can go back to the dentist. But are they ready? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Interesting column in the National Post this week from uh, John Iveson. And uh, the headline is time for Trudeau to focus on what is in Canada's best interest when dealing with China. This in the wake of the decision that came down uh, earlier in the week from a B.C. Supreme Court uh, in which the Huawei CFO was uh, denied her chance to uh, avoid any more of her extradition hearing uh, moving forward and head back to China. That obviously did not happen. John Iveson, columnist for the National Post, is with us now. John, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing great. Thanks very much. Uh, time for Trudeau to focus on what is in Canada's best interest when dealing with China. Why is he not? What is he focusing on? Well, clearly the the, the, the two Michaels who are held uh, in arbitrary, arbitrary detention in China, I think that would give him some some clearance to be a little bit more conciliatory to the Chinese. Um you know, clearly, if you antagonise them, it's not going to help matters. It? And and I think that the the Wang deci- the Meng decision, although it was very good for uh, proof that Canada has an independent judiciary, it was not good for Michael Spavor or Michael Kovrig. Uh, but I think that Trudeau, when he came into office, was was disposed towards China. He saw an opportunity. I think, as many of us did, to uh, for uh, for economic growth growth and trade with China. Um, he was taken to China by his father in 1990, him and his brothers. And, and uh, Pierre Trudeau had explained China is an ancient land. It's always going to go its own way. You've got to respect uh, the, the sort of time-honored traditions of China. And I think he, this kind of slipped out when he talked about how he admired the basic dictatorship of China. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounded like it was a slip of the tongue, but I don't think it was. I think that that's how uh, he sees China. He's, he respects its history, and, and um, I don't think he, he grasped the fact that China changed under Xi Jinping, um, and that it's not. It seems to be really possible to do business with the Chinese regime. I mean, has the has the prime minister has the prime minister come to terms with this isn't what he thought it was or is he still pushing through? I think he's coming to terms, but I think it, it took a while for the scales to fall from his eyes. I mean, the, the uh, everything changed with Meng's arrest and the uh, and the uh, the subsequent detention of Kovrig and, and Spavor. I was in um, Beijing with. Trudeau in December 2017, when he was trying to get the uh, a free trade deal off the ground, you know, all things seemed possible at that time, and they were quite um, arrogant. They were almost, it could be said, uh, certainly naive about the Chinese. We went into the grand hall, the great hall of the people in Beijing, and Trudeau was almost demanding 
that the, the Chinese sign on to his progressive trade agenda, this idea of uh, labor standards and, and environmental standards. And the Chinese gave him a bit of a hard lesson in power politics. It was pretty uh, grim the way that the, the Canadian delegation was treated. I mean, the, the media were manhandled. Uh, the press conference was on. It was off again. It was on again. Um, he didn't get his way. And I think it started to dawn on him at that point that it was going to be hard to do to strike a deal with the Chinese. And then the, the Meng and, and Kovrig and Spavor thing happened. And suddenly the advice he's getting from foreign affairs is that this is not should not all be about uh, trade and, and building more of everything. You've got to see it through the lens of what the Chinese are trying to do, and that's national rejuvenation and, and you know, recovering from the humiliation of being a colonized power. The the impact of that and, and the, the sort of muscularity that Xi has shown in his foreign policy, Canada is still trying to react to that. And I think that we've been too conciliatory. We've, we, for example, we joined the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, which is essentially uh, a, a being used by the Chinese government as a, a model to project soft power. And we're helping them. Now, it seems to me that that is not uh, in Canada's best interest, particularly not when you're spending a quarter of a billion dollars of taxpayers' money. Uh, John, for decades, as you mentioned, back to the days of, of Pierre Trudeau, we have been courting and coddling, some say kowtowing to China, uh, just trying to get a piece of the golden goose that everybody was trying for for the last uh, several decades. Is this was this a failed plan? I mean, I think it was understandable. It, it, when the the idea of a free trade agreement was first mooted, uh, Harper was prime minister, and they did a study to see whether the two economies were complementary. And it turns out they're very complementary. I mean, the things that we want from them, and the the, the things that they want, we provide a lot of resources, um, oil and gas, uh, all the things that the, na- the the natural resources that we're producing have got a ready market there. Meat, uh, wheat, canola, all these things, financial services, all these things were had a huge potential growth upside in China. But what we, I don't think we realized was that they were going to basically take whatever we got, uh, any value-added stuff that they could strip away, uh, make it themselves, and then ditch the, the business relationship. You know, I think we were pretty naive about the fact that this was just going to be like doing business with any other country. And it is not. You know, they are a member of the World Trade Organization, but they tend to uh, pick and choose the rules that they want to abide by. So can we keep moving forward with this same plan? What is the new strategy moving forward? What have we learned from this? Well, I think they, it's clear from COVID that we need to be more self-reliant on things that we desperately need. You know, in this case, protective gear, um, vaccine, for example. Could, could, should, could and should we be dependent on, on a Chinese vaccine? I think that would be very dangerous. Um, should we be involved in the, the Asian Infrastructure Bank? Should we be... Uh, using Huawei to prop up our uh, 5G network, which I think is going to be you know, ever more important as we move forward. I think the answer to all those questions is no, we should not. And that we should be using uh, decoupling from the Chinese economy and looking at alternative markets and alternative suppliers where we can.
because we cannot rely on China, it seems to me. We certainly saw prior to the decision coming down on the weekend, there was a, a mass sort of photo shoot on the steps of the B.C. Supreme Court with the Huawei CFO and some members of her team and such, giving the victory sign and the thumbs up. Uh, and it was certainly sold on Chinese media that they thought that the court would rule uh, in their favor. Obviously, that didn't happen. How We know that's obviously a severe blow to, to China, but what do you think the retaliation will be? What is their reaction? How, moving forward, what are they going to do to Canada? Well, I mean, you, you, that was a good example of, of the, the mindset in China, that they don't believe in the judicial... Uh, independence exists or could exist because it doesn't exist in China. Um, you know whether they were trying to put pressure on the on the judge, you know, it clearly didn't work. The um, but that disbelief is going to amplify the problems for Canada because, in their eyes, uh, Canada just uh, kowtowed to the U.S. instead of to them. I don't think that's what happened at all, but I think that's the impression, and I think the consequences will be. Severe. I mean, it's not clear what that's going to mean. Canada has uh, a trade imbalance with uh, with 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 China. Um, I don't think that you're going to see a blanket tariff increases on Canadian goods going to China because obviously we would reciprocate, and that would hurt China more than it would hurt Canada. So I don't. I think it will be targeted uh, retaliation. They'll take their time. They won't make it look as if it's uh, a direct consequence of this, but everybody will know it is. Uh, what it will be remains to be seen. Uh, the Prime Minister balancing a lot in all of this. Uh, you mentioned the 5G situation, obviously the two Michaels, uh, also a seat on the UN Security Council, which I guess he needs China's support for. Uh, there really isn't a win here for the Prime Minister, is there? No, I think that uh, when he spoke yesterday, he, he lauded Canada's judicial ind- independence and made it seemed like it was, uh, you know, politically for the government, it was a, uh, a letdown, but he was still thinking, you know, well, this is this is how things work here. Um, yeah, he didn't, we're, we're in a bit of a tough spot. I think that uh, it would have been much more convenient for everybody, perhaps, if, if the judge had ruled the other way. But, you know, it's kind of reassuring that she didn't. Um, uh, obviously, uh, uh, lots of, of going, uh, lots going on right now, uh, for, for the prime minister, um, uh, his leadership numbers as most are in times of crisis quite high. Uh, at what point does that start to shift? And, and, and once, you know, lives have been saved and we're out of the woods, does all of this stuff come back to haunt him? Well, I think there will be a transition, you know, it, it, it is a, a bit of a painkiller at the moment. The government has provided all this uh, emergency relief. It's kind of forestalled the pain, and but, but eventually the pain will be felt. And I, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are on the the, the emergency response payments, the two thousand dollars, which are going to come to an end before long. Now the government might renew that payment. They might say you can take another month or two months or however many months. You know, that's 8 million people. And a lot of those people, I guess, are f- figuring out, well, I'll go back to my job after the, the lockdown ends. Well, it would seem to me that a lot of those jobs aren't going to be there. So the government is going to have to keep supporting a lot of people for, you know, for a period of time, all of which is going to add to the deficit. 
at some point, obviously, that deficit has to be reduced and debt paid back. So I think we, the parliamentary budget officer said this week that tax increases are inevitable. Um, I think spending cuts are inevitable. All these things the government is going to have to do in due course, and they're not going to be popular. So I think from the government's point of view, good for them that they got an election in before all that happened. So I suspect hmm. that either later this fall or early next spring, we will we will have an election. There'll have to be a pretext for it. They have to either bring themselves down somehow, but you know it's a minority government, so they could do something that is going to be unpalatable to all the other parties. And we go to the polls again, and I, I suspect if... Uh, if things are going the way they're going now, that would be another liberal majority. John Iveson has been with us, columnist for the National Post. Uh, this week, time for Trudeau to focus on what is in Canada's best interest when dealing with China. John, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well this weekend. Thank you, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, lots of chatter in regard uh, to long-term care and seniors and how we treat them since the report came in from the Canadian Armed Forces and for five specific homes in Ontario, and I believe they reported on, or they were in 25 in Quebec, uh, with specific to these homes that they were in, uh, especially with Ontario, uh, the reports are just uh, absolutely horrific. And we have to mention this is five of, of a vast number of homes that are doing uh, doing extremely well, and I think about 87% that are in a green zone right now. But these five certainly have have got everybody's attention. And if there's situations like this in this in these five, where else could there be situations? Uh, lots uh, of chatter around public versus private systems, and exactly what the government can do to uh, hold to account people that run these in private, in the private sector, in private industry. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time as always. Hope you're well. Glad to be with you, Scott. All right, before we get into, uh, dig into the homes and such, let's talk about what's happened yesterday at the press conference where, uh, the premier said, uh, you know, he was having problems getting inspectors into the homes. Uh, because uh, they didn't want to go in, and totally understandable if there's an unsafe condition there. Uh, and then we, we're hearing from Smokey Thomas uh, today saying that the, the Premier got his information uh, wrong, and what happened was the homes didn't want him, uh, or want the inspectors, rather, uh, coming in. What are your thoughts on all of this? I, I can't think of too many homes that want inspectors coming in if this is the situation, but uh, is, is this a sidebar fight, or is is this the truth coming out? What do we know here? Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm, of course, I'm not sure exactly what we know. I'm not an insider, so to speak. But, um, Scott, I think this just is a general question about the whole system. Uh, What standards are we expecting in these homes? And then how are we inspecting to ensure these standards are there? Um, I I understand that if I was an inspector, especially during the time of COVID-19, I'm worried, I'm concerned, but then that's why we have this marvelous stuff called personal protective equipment, PPE. An inspector can certainly wear a mask. Certainly an inspector can wear a a face shield. They can wear gloves. They can even wear protective clothing, a gown. Uh, It doesn't mean we stop doing inspections because there's a pandemic. In fact, if anything, a pandemic says we need to up the ante on the inspections. There's never a, a more pressing time to ensure that everyone's health is, is at the top notch. I'm not saying the inspectors should put their own personal health at risk, but the only argument that would make sense to me here is that 
the, the inspection service didn't have access to this personal protective equipment, and therefore that's why they weren't doing the inspections. Other than that, it's part of the job, and that, that's what you've signed up for. It's just like a nurse saying, well, I'm afraid of my situation. I, I, I guess I can't do nursing. But, but you, when you signed up to be a nurse, you knew you were going to be around infectious diseases. Don't want you to take unfair chances, but as long as there's personal protective equipment, you need to keep doing your job. Uh, the uh, Smokey Thomas said yesterday or earlier uh, today, rather, that um, that this was a case of the homes not wanting them in, which seems odd, because, again, if you've got a situation like this going on, I mean, I'm sure it's the last thing you'd want to see as an inspector if you were one of these homes, especially if you were caught short sighted. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, again, Scott, I, I, may, I, I may be the wrong person to chat with about this, because what I worry about are scheduled inspections. It, it's a bit like, uh, and I don't know where you are in your life, uh, but, you know, your mom and dad uh, are saying, say to you, I'm going to come over and see you uh, Sunday afternoon, son, and you look around the house, and my gosh, it's it's all a mess. Hmm. So everyone, clean up, clean up, make it look good, and then when mom and dad come here, they actually compliment you. Oh, you keep your house so nice and tidy. But that's not how you really live. The best inspections are not scheduled inspections. The best inspections are not something that we book three months in advance. They are snap inspections when we see you the way you live on a daily basis because that is what the residents in these homes are experiencing. So I get it. Maybe it's not convenient to have an inspection. Maybe the inspection is not to the nth degree where we check every last nook and cranny, but I think it's it's still during a time of a pandemic. These are the most vulnerable people in our population. Every study said that anyone over the age of 65 you're in the most vulnerable category, and if you also happen to have diabetes, if you're fighting cancer, if you have uh, COPD, you're even more vulnerable. There's even more of a reason to be doing these inspections, not less. Uh, ongoing debate whether these should be brought in under the public system or allowed to continue to uh, run privately. Uh, how can we hold these places to account if they are privately run? You know, this this actually is a, a big problem for the public to understand. What does it mean to say that something's public versus private? Uh, I'm going to give you the names of two probably well-known uh, senior spaces here in Hamilton, St. Peter's Hospital and St. Joseph's Villa. Are those public or are they private? And the answer is they're actually private. The only publicly owned homes are those that are owned by the city of Hamilton or the city of Burlington uh, or the Ontario government. Very, very, very few of long-term care homes are owned by uh, a government entity. Therefore, they're almost all private. Now, I can be a private and not-for-profit organization, and that's certainly the case with St. Joseph's Villa and St. Peter's Hospital. They're not in this to make money, but they are private in the sense that the homes themselves are not owned publicly. So I don't think this is an, an indictment of private health care. It might be an indictment of for-profit health care. But then I go back to what we were talking about a moment ago. If this is the model the government wants to have, and I can understand why they may want to do this, they may see it's more efficient to have people who are experts in their field run these places, then you must do two things. You must set certain standards of care, and then you must inspect to make sure those standards of care are being lived up to. Let me give you a different kind of an example, but I I don't know if this helps. 
uh, restaurants. All restaurants out there are generally privately owned, but in the interest of the public, we set standards on how they are to be operated, and then we inspect and we actually issue them a green, yellow, red warning uh, or rating that is publicly displayed so you know what you're getting. And nobody's talking about taking all the restaurants into the public sector. So I don't, again, I don't think this is a an indictment of the private sector per se, but but we must have standards and we must inspect. Again, Scott, I don't claim to be an insider, but I have been led to believe that in 2019, last year, there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe even more than a thousand long-term care homes in Ontario, and only six inspections were done. Six physical inspections were done. That clearly is a system that's crying out for more care. And again, because of no other reason, we're all aging. Uh, I'm 61. I can see long-term care not that far down the road for Marvin. Uh, there's going to be more of us as the baby boom generation ages. We've got to get this fixed, and we've got to get it right now. You know, you, your example of the restaurant was was perfect, uh, and there there's a situation where obviously, if standards aren't met, people can get sick as well. So, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, I'm not comparing apples to oranges here, but how come we can do it for this industry yet we can't for the other? Yeah, or we no, are, we don't seem to be able to. We don't seem to be able to. Now, it may be that the standards in long term care are more complicated, or there's more of them. Uh, you know, we, we actually inspect every restaurant in this province annually and not just call them up on the phone and say, is everything okay? Good. Okay. I got your green light. There's a physical inspection of every restaurant done annually. I just don't see why it's such a big deal. Now there's a cost to inspecting. I get that. And, and in a healthcare system that is already tight, uh, the healthcare system in Ontario costs roughly 45 cents of every tax dollar the government takes in, so it is an expensive system. We tend to think of healthcare in terms of doctors and nurses or maybe hospitals, but long-term care is also part of this. Uh, you know, this is spending. This is not crazy spending. This is the spending that is absolutely critical to make this work. And I'm hoping that Doug Ford, you know, uh, who, who sort of was elected on a mantra of there's efficiencies in these systems. I'm going to, I'm going to sh- wring these efficiencies out and save you more money. Maybe he's going to discover that it's not just about finding cost efficiencies, but there are some places that we need to spend and we need to spend now. Why, uh, we've certainly heard about the profitability of some of these homes. Why, would the ho- why not make the homes pay for these inspections? Or is that another tax? And again, if they're for profit, what's the problem? Why would not uh, this be incorporated so that the home pays for it? Yeah, it's what we'd call a cost of doing business. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, so I don't know. Again, I'm not an insider here, Scott. I don't, I don't know how expensive uh, an inspection is. But to have somebody visit a home for a day, uh, you know, you start doing the math. If they get paid fifty thousand dollars, and there's two hundred and fifty working days, then the, that's two hundred dollars. Mark it up a little bit for the cost of gasoline. An inspection might be two hundred and fifty, three hundred, four hundred dollars. Given the the most of these homes that have um, multiple multiple beds, you know, I just don't think it's such a big cost one way or the other, either for the government to pay or to recoup from the home as a sort of an annual renewal fee of your license. You must pass this inspection. Uh, uh, restaurants, what have you, they understand that is a cost of doing business. I realize it's a new cost of doing business, but I don't think compared to the 
the dollars they're taking in it is is all that significant. And and in fact, honestly, I think if I was in this industry and I had a way to get a piece of paper that I could display at the front door that said, I meet all the standards and it's dated 2020 or 2021, I think that becomes a nice differentiator. You you can leave your loved one under my care and rest yeah. easy because I've got the piece of paper. It's well worth the spending. Uh, stories floating around that uh, obviously uh, some of these per, uh, for-profit are, are publicly traded, that the federal pension fund is involved in some of these homes that are, uh, uh, that are on the hot list. Well, now, especially if you get ones of size, so it's not the single individual home that's got 16 beds or 24 beds, but some of these are actually owned by chains, so they own multiple, multiple homes. Uh, and and what why I would invest it if I was a pension fund is that it's an industry that is steady. In other words, uh, if I have pension monies, I need to invest them in something so that that pension money is there two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, senior care is not going away. It remains a strong uh, industry with nice regular returns. Not necessarily huge returns, but regular returns, meaning they don't vary very much from one year to another. So they do attract uh, investment, absolutely. Um, and and, and I, I would actually say it's a good, solid investment. It's a bit like buying a government bond because, generally speaking, governments don't default on their debt. It, it gives you that security. So that, to me, is not necessarily the problem that there may be corporations that own it. Again, it goes back to having standards and guaranteeing those standards are being met. We certainly know, uh, and there's been lots of chatter about what needs to be done, uh, inspections. Well, first of all, I guess solid rules and regulations that everybody must right. follow, and then the inspections to make sure that those are being adhered to. What? So that's what we're taking from the government side. If you are the owner, operator, uh, of or shareholder of one of these homes or the chain of these homes, what are you taking from all of this moving forward as a business? Well, let me, let me just sort of give you two different answers to this. It's quite possible that there were certain standards in place, but those standards never anticipated the needs of a pandemic. So uh, imagine, for instance, that I'm, I'm a, again, take it out of long-term care. Let's imagine I'm a hospital and I have a janitorial service and I have them clean to a certain standard, and that's fine under normal conditions, but suddenly I'm in pandemic mode and I need to up the ante. I need to take this to a, a more sanitary sanitization level or or a deeper level of cleaning so one problem may be that the standards that we had for the the hospital for the long-term care facilities did not anticipate a pandemic mode so i think we do need to review the standards and that's where some kind of a commission with different people participating that should be in there but assuming for the sake of argument that the standards aren't that much different under a pandemic than they would be in a normal day to day if my home is failing to deliver this service i would be personally ashamed i would expect there would be people who would be resigning over this who would say, I've broken a sacred trust with the residents and with the families of those residents. Um, uh, if the government is having to take over, and this is, seems to be the story coming out of Toronto, that at least in five of these homes, the government's going to move to take over operations, basically, if you will, fire the private sector involved and, and make it public, uh, you know, that that's quite an indictment of what you're doing and you should be hanging your head down. And I would, if I was in that situation, you asked, what would I do if I was on the board? Uh, 
I would come out and be honest and say, all right, we lost sight. Uh, I apologize profusely, profoundly. Here's what we've done. I, I would then quickly try to get some new rules and regulations. It would be as if I was an airline and something I did caused people to get sick. Here's what we've learned. I apologize for that, but then here's what we've learned, and here's the new standards that we're going to imply going forward. And we welcome, we welcome inspections. We welcome uh, scrutiny. Transparency is a key word here in 2020. Where does this leave the industry moving forward? As you said, baby boomer population moving through, going to start to move through. We're going to need more of this, these services moving forward. Uh, does this make investors shy of this industry and, and want to get out because now it's going to be under the magnifying glass for uh, regulation? Are you concerned that this might scare investment away? No, I don't, I don't think I, I'm not as scared of that. I think what it's going to be is going back to a thing we talk about in business all the time, differentiators. So what I'll be looking for are, the, we'll call them class A operators, those who understand this business. Uh, if there's voluntary licensing, they've got the voluntary licensing. If there's voluntary standards, they audit to make sure they meet those standards. And I'm going to be even more certain that I'm investing in the top notch. I don't want to go for the bargain basement at this point. So those people who are trying to run a long-term care facility on a shoestring or they're not interested in meeting the standards, yes, they're going to be in trouble. Some of them might even fail. But the, the top quality people or those who can rise and take themselves into that top quality, um, you, you might remember, uh, I can't quite give you a number, years ago, eight, nine years ago, we had a listeria crisis involving yep. sliced meats, maple leaf foods, and and Maple Leaf said, gosh, you know, w w that's not what we stand for. We're trying to turn out quality meat. There, it could easily have cost that company everything that they had. They're a food company. We've got to have trust in them. So they went extraordinary measures to demonstrate. They dismantled equipment, did thorough cleaning, adopted new standards, then audited against those standards, posted those results. And today we think of Maple Leaf then as a, a fine uh, citizen in the in the corporate world. But for a while there, we questioned it. So you can win trust back, but you've got to then go to that top notch and, and that top level to deliver on those things. And you can imagine that a lot of these uh, operators, owners will be, especially in that class, will be selling safety just like any industry, even the grocery industry. Absolutely. You know, this becomes something you stress in your website, in your social media. You brag about it. You brag about what you do and you show it and you demonstrate it in a way that maybe you didn't before. You know, maybe long-term care homes were being sold to people based on amenities. We've got a pool table. We've, yeah. got a, we've got a nice reading room over here. We've got a choir that comes in once a week and sings. And those are lovely and it's good for mental health. But those basic standards of cleanliness, uh, quality of food, that we know how to have personal protective equipment for the staff, that we, we treat the, uh, the citizens correctly, I don't think that was ever not in people's minds, but sometimes because we take that as the ante to the poker game, we think of that as the basic level, we get focused on the next step up. And this has reminded us that we should never take that basic level for granted. Yeah, it's almost like the some seniors' homes are selling it as an uh, an all inclusive resort. It, it's odd. Now, obviously, that is that's going to change the focus. Well, uh, we Marvin Ryder, all inclusive, but we want it to be a nice, clean, and well managed all inclusive. <laughs> that's it. Uh, Marvin Ryder's been with us to Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You do the same. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, one of the questions that has been asked of late is when are uh, certain services going to start to reopen? We've seen the hospitals slowly move from pandemic mode to now starting to do uh, other elective surgeries and procedures and such. Same thing in regard to dentists, chiropractors, massage therapists. Um, uh, you know, it's it's tough to get an appointment, and you have to think. Well, you can't. <laughs> how how this is going to move forward, and perhaps the logjam that we may have as we get through patients. Ontario dentists are now allowed to open. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. David Stevenson is with us, past president of the ODA and current head of their return to work task force, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Scott. Glad to be here. So what is the, the latest on uh, dentist's office? Where are we now? I understand that prior to this, uh, if you had an emergency procedure, an emergency situation, you probably could get in. Where are we now? Yeah, we up till now, we've been able to treat emergencies and urgent care, and, and we're still there right now. Even though, even though the new directive came down from the, the Ministry of Health on, on Tuesday, we're still awaiting our, our colleges, our regulatory bodies' guidelines, uh, to, to just give us uh, give dentists a look uh, at just how that's going to happen. So the return to work will be gradual. Uh, we've got to go ahead as such from the ministry, but we still need to wait for those guidelines from our college to sort of be able to open up our services to, to more non-essential care, uh, even essential care and elective care. So we're still in a little bit of waiting time. Uh, and I just, in the meantime, I just ask that patients have uh, have a little bit of patience in in letting us take this properly. Uh, you know, you have to think of all of the occupations that must be difficult uh, when it comes to droplets and things that fly around that spread this disease, which is you know exactly how it uh, it spreads. Dentistry, it would seem almost impossible to do this. What is it going to look like once we do get back to the dentist? No, it's it's a good question. You know, dentists have always the dental office has always been an extremely safe place to come, and it will continue to be that way. Uh, but you're right; this is a disease that does require some additional droplet precautions, and 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 you know we've seen that already. And you mentioned earlier on the show when you go into retail offices, you see differences. You see you see plexiglass screens. You see people wearing masks. You see fewer people in the office, and you can you can expect the same with with dentistry. You know, it has it's been eleven weeks since we've been able to see our patients for for any real care and so there is going to be a little bit of a backlog at the same time we do have to limit the number of patients that come into our office we have to limit the number of staff we have to still preserve those aspects of social distancing or physical distancing but when it does kind to actually do the treatment you're right we need to protect ourselves we need to protect the patients we need to protect our staff and we need to protect our communities. And so it will, there will be some evidence of those barriers other places. There'll be, you know, the patient needs to wear their mask throughout the appointment until we actually have to work on them. And, and there'll be other things that you see in the operatory. There may be barriers in certain spots, uh, a little bit more protective equipment that looks, that you see when you, when you're talking to your dentist or your hygienist or the assistants and staff. So it'll look a little different, but I think the main thing that patients will notice is it'll just take a little bit longer time you know we we have to get through the 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 patients that we've already seen on emergency or postpone their treatment due to the limitations that we have right now 
Uh, we'll be able to see fewer patients in a day, more spread out appointments, fewer staff. That's some of these things patients have seen already when they go into retail stores. So are you expecting a backlog as you do slowly get back into it? Or as we've seen with other situations, people may be a little apprehensive to go at first. Yeah, you know, we are expecting a backlog to a certain extent because for, for the reasons that I've mentioned, already in our office, we have a list of patients that are waiting to go in. You know, uh, that, that broken tooth that is uh, cutting their gums or, or yeah. cutting their tongue or cutting their cheek, we need to get that fixed. It's been postponed a lot. Patients have been on antibiotics. They need to get off that and get the treatment done. So there is a bit of a backlog on that. And then also the backlog will relate to, you know, an office who will may have been accustomed to seeing many patients patients a day, they're going to have to see fewer patients a day just because the process involved to do it safely takes longer. Uh, so obviously uh, approval from government waiting for uh, regulatory guidelines from uh, your association. When will we know more in regard to when dentist office, offices will open? You know, that's a question you'll have to ask our regulator, the Royal College of Dental Surgeons of Ontario. We know they're working on it. Uh, we know they're working on it diligently. Uh, but as to exact timeline as to when that comes out, uh, again, I'm a member of the association and I rep- represent the association. So I don't know that exactly, Scott. I really don't. All right. Dr. David Stevenson has been with us, past president of the Ontario Dental Association and current head of the Return to Work Task Force. Uh, Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with this challenge moving forward. All right, Scott. Thank you very much. You take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.